is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Good afternoon, Mr. Coleman. Good afternoon, my man. Put some respect on my name. (laughs) (laughs) Takawa La Prince. (laughs) You better respect it. (laughs) You got to say it with respect. Go ahead. Did it take you a while getting used to the time difference on the West Coast when I'm like, good afternoon, and you're like, it's 10 in the morning and it's 1 p.m. over here. I imagine you're used to it now, but was that weird at first? I feel like that'd be really weird to feel like you're out of sync with most of the world and many of the people you communicate with. Dude, it, it's it's so horrible. I, I, I had to actually stop myself from doing things like emailing you guys, telling you when I'm going to bed and what time I'm waiting up, waking up. Because when I wake up, even if it's like seven in the morning, I'm like, okay, let's make my coffee. It's a good time yeah, to get Cam- started. Cameron's been working for three hours and he's yes. like, where the hell have you been? Seriously. Like by, just by sleeping in until 7 a.m., I've already like started my day having lost tons of social capital. So my first three, my first three hours is just like earning respect and trust back. And then I start my work. Dude, you are, you are a victim of East Coast privilege. <laughs> totally you know it's I like, like that term <laughs> east coast privilege all i gotta do i roll out of bed at like 8 30 9 o'clock i start working i'm working for a couple hours you roll a bed it's at 6 30 you go do a workout for 45 minutes you shower <laughs> you write a blog post and you immediately get to work on praxis stuff by 8 30 and i'm like dude it's almost lunchtime why haven't you done anything yet <laughs> The, the only payoff is that, you know, I, I could go on the Praxis page at like 11 p.m. and write a post and make everyone think I'm a beast. It's like, whoa, look <laughs> at this guy, man, up at two in the morning fighting for the company. <laughs> well, what's funny is I know at times you stop yourself because I know you like to stay up till midnight, one, two. <laughs> and, you know, if it's 2 a.m. there, it's 5 a.m. here. And I, and I know sometimes you stop yourself um, because you don't want somebody to be like, dude. You need to get some sleep. You got to get your schedule fixed. You know, I, I love how you say someone like vaguely, like you, have, <laughs> like you haven't actually called me before. Like, <laughs> like go to bed. As if it would be anyone else on the team. <laughs> I'm, I'm the I'm, only one. Yeah, somebody might be unhappy. You never know. <laughs> I remember getting a call from you at like five in the morning, be like, "What the hell? What the, what the hell are you doing up?" <laughs> oh man hey so That's today awesome. let's do uh listener questions you down i'm down man down so I, let's I asked do it. yesterday on facebook we had a couple come through the website um uh isaacmorehouse.com um oh we should promote tkcoleman.com too it's only fair yeah, go to isaacmorehouse.com and also if you feel bad for tk go to tk coleman <laughs> or if you want to learn how to love yourself <laughs> come to tk if you want to learn how to get stuff done and actually achieve progress like tracking it with measurable goals and you know all that kind of stuff go to isaac morehouse if you want to learn how to love yourself and uh feel good and fluffy come to tkcoleman.com Hey, you know, but the truth is like getting stuff done is less important than uh, feeling fulfilled. I mean, I don't think you can feel fulfilled without getting stuff done, but I know you can get stuff done without feeling fulfilled as well. So 
You've got to combine the two of us. We're like the, I don't know, yin and yang or something. You, you, hey, you really do need both, though, because you can be productive according to some external standard. But if your quality of life is low and you don't love your life, then, you know, you, you've got a big missing piece there. But the reverse is also true. We often idolize feeling good and we make a God out of being happy all the time. But if you're moving your life forward, getting stuff done, treating your work as a life of art, sometimes you create from a state of angst, from a state of anger, from a state of sadness, from a state of just like feeling neutral. And I really do think you need both for a balanced life. You need to work very hard regardless of how you feel. And you need to learn how to think about more than just getting stuff done, but hey, thinking about what makes so, you feel. So have you ever had this experience where you'll have a day, you'll be like, oh my gosh, I am so thrilled about tomorrow. I have no meetings, no phone calls. I don't have any deadlines of something I'm supposed to deliver. I've got, my schedule is my own. I'm going to do all the things that I kind of usually want to do, but don't have time for. I'm going to do some work, but just the kind of bigger picture work that I kind of like. <laughs> it, it gives me, you know, I'm going to do a little writing for myself. I'm going to do a little reading and go for a walk. Listen, and you're like so excited because you have nothing on the agenda. And then you sort of right. find yourself like a little restless and a little unhappy during the day because you're sort of, you kind of, because you can choose anything, you kind of have a hard time like settling in. Like you'll be like, you know what? I'm going to do this. And then you're doing it and you're like, yeah, but. But I don't have to be doing this. What if there's something I could be doing that's better? And you like have a hard time enjoying the day because yeah, yeah. you ever have that happen? Oh, man, all the time. So um, Dan Gilbert has done a lot of interesting work on this idea. Um, he has a book called Stumbling Up on Happiness. And he's got a couple of TED Talks that I think are pretty good to give you a, a good preview of the book. But he talks about how bad of a job we do at predicting the conditions when uh, under which when we'll be happy. And we significantly overestimate when we'll be happy and we underestimate the power of conditions to keep us unhappy. And one of the things he points out in some of his research is how we significantly underestimate how much things like work and structure make us happy, that we're often most fulfilled when we're really busy, when we're intensely engaged, when we're doing highly challenging tasks. But these are the very things we think we always need a break from. You know, like, oh, a day with absolutely nothing to do is the best. But when you give a human being a day with nothing to do, you know, they, they may kind of sit around for a little bit, but they'll quickly get bored and they'll quickly start to crave challenges. In fact, we can't even have fun playing games unless we first invent these artificial arbitrary rules just to make it difficult. We crave challenges for fulfillment. This is why the PDP is so important to me personally, this personal development project, what, what the Praxis curriculum is built around, these monthly challenges you come up with for yourself. And, th and this came out of all of us on the team basically doing this throughout our lives and, and finding them so valuable. But the, the reason it's so valuable to me personally, to, I always have some, some PDP going. Um, <clears throat> Because if I were to say, I just want to read a lot and there's so many interesting things and so many interesting books and articles and topics that it's all interesting to me, which is all true. Um, man, if I just had a day with nothing scheduled, nothing planned, nothing that I had to do, I would just explore all kinds of stuff. But what I find is when I have that day, I pick up a book and I have this like overwhelming FOMO, whatever I'm reading, I'm like, yeah, but, but I could be reading anything. Maybe I should read another one instead. And then I put it down. Don't you mean FOMO? FOMO. <laughs> Dude, California has changed you. You're a valley girl. Uh, but it's like, so, but if instead, if I say this month, 
My PDP is to read and finish five books on astronomy. Now I have a challenge. I've got a spreadsheet I've got to check off and it makes me like, oh crap, I'm not allowed to go play basketball until I get my PDP done. And it almost feels a little annoying, but if I don't have it there, I don't go play basketball anyway because I keep wondering if maybe there's something else I could be doing now that I have all this freedom. You know, it's just a weird thing. Oh yeah, and and the genius of the PDP is that it's finite. When you and I first started experimenting with this concept, we were doing year-long challenges, right? Like (laughs) blog every day for a year. You know, we we were doing all this kind of crazy stuff, but we've kind of optimized it into this 30-day thing. And what's great about 30 days is that it's just enough time to really push you and force you to get stuff yeah. done when it's, it's not really easy. Hard. Yeah, it, it's super hard. But at the same time, it's it kind really of easy. it minimizes the fear of me. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't help myself. I keep thinking about that Dave Chappelle sketch with Rick James. <laughs> He's like, no, I didn't touch his couch. Yeah, I messed up his couch. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's good. It's it's so not funny the first 10 times you watch it, but then after like the 10th time, dude, it just keeps getting better. But but no, like what? So one of the great things about it is that because it's only 30 days when you're done, like that's all you got to do, you know? So if you feel like, man, I don't know if I can keep this up or man, this is really tough. You can just finish out that month, take inventory and then adapt and do something that, that suits you. But let me tell a quick story about a PDP experience I had last night that, that you'll absolutely love because you talk a lot about finishing books and forcing yourself to finish them. So one of my um, activities for my PDP for August is to read a book a week. Last week I read James Altucher's Rich Employee. This week I had a book that I was reading and we're, we're here on, last night we were at Thursday and I was about halfway through the book And I've just been struggling. I've had a really busy week. It's been tough to read. I sit down last night. I read about 10 pages and I'm kind of falling asleep. And there's a moment where I have this epiphany and I say, dude, you're reading this book because you think it's important to read. You don't care about this book. You don't like the writing. You don't like it. Just admit it to yourself. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's true. But, but it's already Thursday and I, and I got to finish a book this week. So I'm just going to power through it. And so I, I, I try to read a few more pages and I'm like, you know what? Screw this. I went over to my book, my bookshelf. I picked up something that I felt excited about. And I said, I don't care if I stress out. I'm going to read something that I enjoy. I sat down and I read that book and it felt like the twinkling of an eye. Like an hour later, I had finished the entire book in one sitting. I was able to do in one sitting what I, what I struggled to accomplish in one week by shifting from a mindset of reading something because it's objectively important to reading something that genuinely resonated with me. So in respect to your uh, don't do stuff you hate philosophy, I, I think that's a story that uh, that you'd appreciate. That's a powerful combination too of, okay, uh, don't, don't do stuff you hate. Don't just, you know, force yourself to finish this book because you said you would, but also If you had only, if you didn't have that PDP where you had committed, I want to read a book a week. I want to get the benefit of this. I want to see what happens. I am not going to quit that because that's not something I hate, or at least I won't know until I finish the one month. That's what's great about it. Like, okay, maybe you hate it on day two, but you've committed to a month and you want to be the kind of person that finishes a month. And then you can decide if it's ever worth doing again. But so, so instead of just saying this book sucks, I don't want to do things I hate. I'll just stop reading. I won't read my book this week. You said, nope. 
I'm bounded. I have to read a book this week, but I have this other value called, I don't want to do stuff that I hate. How can I square these things? I, I know I'll go find another book that I enjoy. And it forces yeah. you to kind of meet both of those things to, to get the value of sticking to something you yourself set up for you. And then that, you know, you want, you don't hate reading a book a week, but you do hate this particular book. So it lets you kind of, it, it, you know, trying to hold both of those standards at once is I think where all the action is. Okay. Absolutely. But, but, but since we're, we referenced the phrase a lot, don't do stuff you hate. Uh, now available on Amazon, written by Isaac Morehouse and Mitchell Earl. I with, also wrote with forward. a forward by Takoa LaPrince Coleman. Respect Let's the name. Respect the name. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was going to say, dude, book a week challenge. I now have authored or co-authored six books. So there's a month and a half for you, man. Nice. They're, they're mostly short and really, so they'd it'd be really easy. Okay. Um, questions from El Audience, which is not uh, good Spanish. I'm sure. TK, you want to start? We both, I, I did something we usually don't do. You will usually just read these in real time and come up with them off the top of my head. So earlier today, I pasted them all into a word document and we have both scanned over these, uh, briefly. So, um, we have a little bit of familiarity. So you want to start? Absolutely. I, I want to start off by giving, uh, a little plug for, um, an interesting Kickstarter project by Eric Olson. And, and, and I, want, I, want, I want to read to you a, a brief little uh, preview for it. It's a, it's, it's a book that's going to be coming out that you might want to check out. Give us a king for thousands of years and from every nation. This has been the cry of the people. Today we call our king president, but the desire is the same. We elect an individual to this position, hoping that simply by giving them this title of grandeur, they will miraculously be made worthy of the role. And we are more than not disappointed. And we are more often than not disappointed. Why every president sucked. America's undying pursuit for a king aims to halt a voter's future search for presidential perfection by detailing how each and every former president has failed to live up to those expectations. So this book right here, we'll, we'll make sure we send the link um, on, you know, on, on the blog when we post the podcast and on Facebook. But it's an interesting Kickstarter project, a book with a very provocative premise. This sounds like it'll be it'll be challenging for those of you who might be inclined to see politics, particularly presidential politics, as the only way to create a freer society or even as the primary or preferred way. So hey, I wanted to start off with that plug. Yeah. So that that was from Eric Olson. He submitted through the uh, Ask Isaac thing on the website and I saw it and I'm like, oh, I see what he's doing. He's trying to get a plug for his book. This isn't a question. However, I couldn't resist because, look, if it was a live event. And someone during the Q&A stands up and says, yes, um, I have a statement uh, or, you know, go to my website or something. Everyone would be you would be burning social capital. That'd be annoying. But in this case, Eric sent this to me. He took a shot. He knows that nobody has to listen to this unless we choose to read it. And I couldn't resist because after he describes the book, he flatters us. He's like, I'm personally grateful to all you do. And this is my attempt to contribute and I'm like, oh, you know, make me feel great, Eric. Thank you. You know what? Yes, we will plug your book. So there, <laughs> there you go. Well done. I'll put a link to smart, it, the Kickstarter, Why Every President Sucked, America's Undying Pursuit for a King. I have not read it yet, but it sounds really cool. And thank you, Eric, for submitting. Uh, okay, next question. I don't know how to pronounce your name. I apologize, but it's Sigal Sharabani. 
Many of the ideas you talk about in the podcast really resonate with me. I'm trying to understand more about the ideas of libertarianism that I first heard of in your podcasts. Uh, I am not American. You like the example of running naked in the mall and how people would not do it um, with or without a law. But what about the one that does and maybe does something inappropriate, like wants to expose themselves in front of children or something like that? How do you deal with that in a world where the power of violence is not in the hands of police. Um, okay, so I have talked many times about um, the myth of the rule of law uh, and really legislation is what I'm talking about precisely because law can mean a lot of things. But the, the myth that the order we see around us comes from legislation written down on paper. You know, the, the only thing keeping the thin line between chaos and order is some piece of paper that some bureaucrat wrote and voted on somewhere. And that's a myth. That's a total and complete myth. And the example I use is if indecent exposure laws were overturned today, how many of you would go running naked through the shopping mall? Nobody. Nobody's going to raise their hand and say, yes, that was the one thing I keep waiting. I keep checking the the laws every day to see when they finally change it. So I will go and, you know, uh, display myself public <laughs> publicly. So the question here is, yeah, but what about those people who want to, who don't feel that the social norms and the private rules and all those things that are creating the order, all those things that are really doing the heavy lifting, not the legislation. What about people who buck those who have a different approach? And my answer to that is Seagal, this is already the case now. This is already the case now. So there's no difference between a world without those written uh, legislated you know, laws and a world with them in terms of causing this person, the person who's like, screw that, I wanna go out there and do something inappropriate. They're going to do it either way. And in fact, we have people that do it either way. So today, you occasionally get people who are doing inappropriate things in public, despite the fact that laws exist. I don't think any of those people are like, man, if if I only had to deal with private mall security and, you know, uh, civil civil lawsuits from the shopping mall, then I would go ahead and, you know, streak through the mall. But the fact that I also have to deal with government law enforcement on top of it, that changes everything. I don't think that's a calculation going on in anybody's head. So I would say. You're going to have those cases, whether or not you have a government monopolized violence or government monopolized law enforcement or court system, you're going to have people who violate those norms and those rules. The question is, which society is more likely to reduce it and to handle it in the most efficient and just way? And in my mind, it's pretty clear that a society that does not have a monopoly force, which can be taken over and corrupted much more easily because it faces no competition, but a society which has competitive mechanisms for enforcing social norms, commercial rules, all those things, and various law enforcement services, uh, agencies, things like that, that are competing for customers, they will do better. We're not talking about utopia in either case, but they will do better. Hopefully that helps get to the question a little bit. You, you know, I, this actually gives me a movie idea. You know how... <laughs> I'm not a little concerned. <laughs> you, you ever read those articles like, uh, like seven... Seven illegal things that are dumb, like like stupid laws, like yeah. 
Um, like it's illegal to throw in certain places to throw ashes on a sidewalk. Or there's one I read before where it says like if you tie an elephant to a parking meter, the parking fee has to be paid just as yeah. it would be for yeah, vehicle. It's, like, it's like illegal somebody... to slurp your soup uh, and to and to do remixes of the national anthem in some places. Yeah. Yes, yes. So when you were reading that question, you says, but what about the one that does, right? Because it's the one that does that always scares us and freaks us out. So the name of the movie would be like the one who does. And, and it'll, it'll start like like Zach Galifianakis. And he'll be the guy that breaks all of these stupid laws <laughs> to reveal to us like the, the comedic nature of just how quick we are to use violence to defend these absurd ideas. So he will be the guy to like tie the elephants in the parking meter, throw ashes on the sidewalk. It'll be a, a romantic comedy, the one who does. <laughs> Zach Galifianakis, have your agent give us a call if you want to talk. <laughs> Andrew Stover asks, if you had to choose another industry to start in as an entrepreneur other than education, what would it be? Obvious, obviously a good spot for a quick Praxis plug for any listeners who are unfamiliar. Praxis, discoverpraxis.com is the company that TK and I uh, are building, are in the process of building and growing right now. And it is a nine-month apprenticeship experience, a professional boot camp and paid apprenticeship at a startup for young people who want to kickstart their career and take charge of their life. No college degree required. And it's pretty awesome. Um, but yeah, so it's roughly in the education industry. TK, what would you say if you had to choose another industry? I know you already were involved in a startup in the entertainment industry. Um, but if, you know, if Praxis was, uh, no more or, you moved on or we had never started in the first place or whatever, and you were going to do a startup in a different industry, what would you pick? So besides the obvious of making movies with such stars like Zach Galifianakis, I would still move in the direction of media. And I think I would take some time to dedicate myself to an idea like Gossip Gone Good, which is an idea that I that I still have have within me somewhere. And, and basically, this would combine my passion for entertainment slash media and inspiration. And I, I one of my favorite quotes is by uh, Esther Hicks, where she says, excuse me, if, if I do not join you in your resentment of this or that, I would rather look for something to praise. And I'm the kind of person who I tune out most of the news and I like to tune into things that inspire me and that propel me forward. And I would love to zoom in on celebrities and, and, and the failures that they've had to overcome and, and talk about the things in their lives that are genuinely gossip worthy, but how they've successfully coped with those things and parlayed them into success. So the idea there would be gossip, taking that same juicy, scandalous stuff that we love to consume, but also showing how those things can be the catalyst for furthering ourselves in the creative process. So when you look at people like Robert Downey Jr. and how ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous this dude's life looked at one point. And how he turned it around. I, I would like to to creatively curate, create, and market those kinds of stories. So that would be the direction hey, I would move in. Whatever happened to Gossip Gone Good? You used to do. Uh, you had a website and a Facebook page and like a newsletter, and you used to do this stuff. You put it like took a bit of research and stuff. What 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 caused you to put that on the shelf? Well, you know, um, it, it's definitely on a temporary shelf. It's something that I do intend to come back to. Right now, in, in terms of just following my passion and my focus, I really want to do what I want to do with Praxis. I want to see this through. This is like Praxis is like winning a championship for Cleveland. 
This, this oh, is number one on. priority, man. We, we, we... <laughs> so you mean we have to suffer decades of humiliation first? <laughs> yeah, I, I hate I hate to go here, but but you know, like tr- traditional education is like Golden State, man. Everybody's all hyped up about that. You know, everybody no, believes no. that's the way to go. <laughs> I'm stopping this analogy right now. You're you're about to ruin my entire. <laughs> Hey, but I, I actually, I do. I'm truly stopping it. But I want, I want to, I want to draw an interesting point though from this gossip gone good discussion. This is something we've been talking about a lot with our Praxis participants recently. Is this concept of sort of a personal brand, and they all build their own website. And there's often this point where it's like, well, okay, I want to have like a good, valuable personal brand because it's one of those things you have one whether you like it or not. So you might as well make it valuable. So we're not talking about like creating a brand when you don't really have to. You have to, you have one. People are going to look you up online and they're going to think something about you. So, okay, we want to take charge of our brand, have a good website, have, you know, and it's really stressful for a lot of our participants. They're like, but I don't know. I like a lot of things. I don't know what I want. Like, do I want to have a food focused blog? Do I want to? And I, you know, what we always say is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You have the freedom to change. Just start doing something that's interesting to you. Just create something. Having something that ends up changing is better than having nothing. And this is a great example. You started Gossip Gone Good. You loved it. You had a lot of ideas for it. It was kind of, you know, you were started refining it. You were putting a lot of stuff out there. Other things that were more valuable to you started to come into your life. And And I'm guessing part of the reason they did was because you were creating Gossip Gone Good. That helped you access other parts of yourself creating, writing, et cetera, that you previously didn't have. And you have gone since in a different direction. Gossip Gone Good is not currently a part of your brand. But you would never say, shoot, that ruined me. I I was trying to make that my brand and then I had to switch. And now it's like, oh, this is terrible. Like, no, there's no trouble with switching and adapting and maybe you'll switch back and whatever. Just start doing stuff, you know? Yeah, I I have no concept whatsoever of all that time spent working on Gossip Gone Good as being a waste of time. Like, oh, if I had only used that year to work on Praxis, like we didn't even have that idea. And it was the time spent working on that that actually taught me a lot of things and, and caused me to evolve in this direction. And that's not something still that I can come back to. But hey, man, this might be a good a good moment to talk about how you watching me blog every day played a huge role in you taking me on. Hey, I like this, dude. You're you're playing the role I usually play, which is, hey, this would be a good opportunity for you to talk about me. Well done, man. So um, that's exactly that. That's right. That this is a really I find this to be a very powerful story. So DK and I have been really good friends for a long time, uh, a decade or more, and we talked all the time and whatnot. And um. I, when, when the idea for Praxis was first being born, I talked to TK about it and he was excited about it. He kind of, he was kind of like, I think I get it, but I'm not quite sure. Yeah. It sounds cool though. Keep going after it. And he was kind of working on a little startup of his own and some other stuff that he had going on the side and, and, um, always has many things going. And then when it came to, I need some help building this thing with basically no money. I've got, I need, I need some people early on to help me get this off the ground and to really get it going so we can launch. I knew TK had one half of the skill set that I needed, which was this amazing uh, grasp of tons of content, lots of knowledge, lots of ability to, to call material and create really powerful curricula. But what I didn't know was 
you know, TK's always been a really creative guy. He's hardworking, but he works in a very different style from me. He's a little less organized. He's a little like he just he's more haphazard in the way he approaches things. I don't say that in a negative way. Like that's that's your strength. It's just a different style. And so I was like, I don't know, would this would this be too confining for him, for his work style? Could he consistently deliver things within an environment like this that requires like a lot of collaboration with people and blah, 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 blah. And my answer to that question could never come from asking TK. Because if you ask somebody, if they're passionate about the project, of course they'll say, yeah, I can handle it. But if I always had doubts, it would have been a bad relationship to start with. It just would have been like me constantly doubting whatever else. Looking at the product of someone's life, what they've produced, that's where you get that. And I looked and I saw, you know what? TK started blogging every day. And it had been almost a year that you had been doing this at this point. And I remember when you told me you were going to do it. You wanted to force yourself not to just be a creative person when it felt good, but to create as a discipline. You wanted to force yourself to do something that doesn't come natural to you, to not just follow your whims and fancies, but to actually force yourself to think, to write, even when you don't feel that. And I watched you do that for a year and it inspired me to take up the same challenge eventually. I watched you do that and I watched you deliver every single day. And I heard you tell me the stories about some of the days when you were like in a hospital bed, almost passed out, but you still cranked out a little blog post on your iPhone app or whatever. (laughs) I talked about all this stuff. I mean, I remember you talking about all this stuff and I was like that, that proved to me that other part, because I had only ever been friends with you. We'd never been, we'd never worked together. And so there's some things that you just don't see in a friendship. And my question was like, does he have that working thing? Cause I want to ruin our friendship trying to work together and it doesn't work out. And I didn't think it would get ruined, but it could be tough. And you blogging every day proved that to me in a way that no amount of words ever could. And I think that's a really powerful thing that we can demonstrate our value in ways that go far beyond what we could tell people with resume bullet points or conversations. And, and, and it, it also is a great illustration of the point that when you just focus on the work that's in front of you at the time, based on your interest today, you never have to worry about losing out if your mind changes. Whatever you're doing today, if you do it faithfully and you do it well, it will serve you in the next step that you're taking. Yes. Just seeing that you decided to blog every day and you delivered on that. That's a quality that was like, oh my gosh, yes, this is a guy that we've got to be working together, not just for the fun. Um, Okay, Andrew, my answer to your question real quickly. uh, If I was not in education industry as an entrepreneur, that's really tough. Um, I kind of think about it this way. The things that get me the most excited are where there is the most massive, massive gap because I'm not very good at spotting really small gaps um, between what you know, is being produced and what customers want and, and finding those, I, it needs to be like so massive that anybody could see it for me to be, to, to get it. Cause I'm a little dense. So where there's the most massive gap between what the market wants and what's being delivered and where technologically it is already currently possible to close that gap, but it's not being done for various reasons. That's what I'm drawn to. So what, are, what does that mean? It tends to mean industries where the only reason that gap exists is because government policy is really stupid. Uh, transportation, uh, education, which obviously I'm in right now, um, money and banking, the financial sector, and healthcare. 
to me, those four are the most, we are living with something that is so vastly inferior to what is currently technologically possible, all because of policies that those areas intrigue me. Not because I think you can go lobby to change the policies, but because I think if you get creative enough, you can innovate around those. Even though the policies are there to prevent things from upsetting the apple cart, there's always a way around it. Okay, free healthcare for everyone provided by the government, quote unquote free. It makes healthcare horrible. It creates all these problems. It's terrible. So what? Set up a cash only clinic anyway. Set up an app, you know, that allows you to consult with somebody, even if it's breaking some law about being a doctor. Find a route, a workaround. Find a loophole. That's where the value is going to come, right? Um, I think that's the case in transportation. I think finance and uh, you know financial technology and and banking, all those things. So one of those industries where it's like we are currently suffering through something so far behind what's technologically possible. Um, and I think part of the reason is because people have so much respect for rule of law that they're always like trying to think of a way that's fits within the intended legal framework right now, instead of thinking, how could I sort of work around the law or fudge the law or, <laughs> you know, that's where the, that's where I would like to go. Uh, nice. Simon Fraser, what will Praxis look like in one year, five years, 10 years? Let me give you my answer real quick. Uh, one year, bigger, faster, better version of what we are today. Uh, twice as many people going through it, the product, the quality, the everything you see on steroids from what it is today. Five years, when you hear the word apprentice, Praxis will come to mind the same way when you hear the word search, Google comes to mind. We will own and dominate that concept, that space. The apprenticeship is back, baby, and Praxis brought it back. 10 years, our alumni will be Famous world changers, household name, world famous movers and shakers, entrepreneurs, creators in the world will be Praxis alum and you'll know it. But I also like Derek's five-year answer. He said, I can answer five years and he posted a picture from uh, Terminator of one of the robots. I thought that was pretty great. <laughs> TK, did you have an answer to that one, five, 10 years? I, I love what you had to say, man. I'm going to stick with that with, with an emphasis on Derek's Terminator robot and an inclusion at the five-year mark of actually having Allen Iverson do Praxis commercials. <laughs> yes. Tim Shermack, our good buddy, uh, actually is has created a We Talking About Praxis t-shirt with Iverson's likeness <laughs> on it. It's pretty amazing. Um, Tom Bogle, how have you been able to get high-profile people to do things for you? Podcasts, write book chapters, curriculum design, etc. I know the basics, build social capital, deliver a, va a value proposition, but I'd love to hear detailed examples. Um, let me try to think of an example here. If you, TK, do you have any examples um, that you can think of right away? You know, every time that I've been able to successfully do that, I have sim simply done, you know, use what James Altucher calls the 10 times method. He discusses this in The Rich Employee. Before you ask someone for something, anticipate the need ahead of time, build social capital by doing something for them, even if it's something as small as checking up on them, then make your ask, you know, briefly before you need it. So it's the opposite of what I get in my Facebook inbox like every week. I always have people that 
I met at some point like five years ago or something, and they're making some kind of independent film, and they're saying, hi, TK, can you donate $500 to my movie project? Or, hi, TK, can you donate money to whatever it is I'm doing? And it's like, oh, man. I, I mean, I'm, I'm the guy who owns a pickup truck that hasn't heard from his friends in two years, but now that they're getting ready to move this weekend, you know, everybody cares about me, right? I, I feel like that guy. And I'm not upset that I get these requests, but it's just a sort of thing of, hey man, dig your wells before you need the water. You know, you know, um, ask me how I'm doing beforehand. So when I ask people for stuff, I, I do the exact opposite. If I wanna interview for someone, I have to do this a lot for Praxis group discussions, for instance, every month, I like to have a guest entrepreneur who joins us, talks about their story, shares some skills and insights for our participants. So I have to reach out to high profile, very busy people. And I make sure that I know ahead of time the kinds of people that I wanna, wanna have and I groom them before I do it. So if someone gives me a contact, unless I have an introduction, I'm not gonna ask them right away. I'm gonna take some time to follow them and anticipate making my ask in a couple of months and putting them in my pipeline and, you know, supporting what that person does. So that's always been a strategy that works for me. Dig your wells before you need the water. So I'm gonna give you three things, Tom. Build first, be helpful, be direct. Build first. So there's a temptation when you've got something and you want somebody's help. Hey, will you promote this Kickstarter? Or will you write the foreword to this book? Or will you to ask them before the thing even exists? Hey, I'm thinking about launching a podcast. Would you be willing to come on as a guest? And that's sort of a way to like, limit your exposure and your risk of failure. Like, well, I'm thinking about a podcast, but I don't know if it'd be interesting. And if I could even get any guests, let me figure out if people would agree to come on it first. That's a, I think that's actually a really bad way to go about it because now you're guaranteed to have multiple asks. So if you ask me, Hey, would you be willing to come on a podcast if I launched it? And I said, yes, great. I'll follow up when it's live. Now you got to come back when it's live and make another ask. Hey, you ready to come on the podcast? Remember we talked about it now being asked itself is a cost. So if I'm asked once, that's a lower cost than if you have to ask me twice or three times or four times. So you want to minimize those, but also momentum attracts involvement. Success attracts success. Momentum attracts momentum. Like if you're already building and doing something, that's what I want to be a part of more than the thing that you need my help to even get it out of idea form. So this is the same for investors. If you want to raise money for something, if you go and say, Hey, I've got this idea. If you give me money, it can come to life. Yeah, that's, that's okay. If you come and say, Hey, this idea, it's already underway. We already have the website built. We're moving on. It's going to happen with or without you. You want to get on board? Oh yes. Yeah. I want to be a part of that because you see it, you see momentum, you see something real. So build it first. If I've written a book and I say, Hey, I've got this book. It needs another chapter. Here's some of the other authors. Do you want to contribute? Or, Hey, this book is ready to go. If you can give me a forward, it will go live in 30 days. I would, I would be honored to have you be a part of it. Here's the book. Oh, wow. This guy already made it. He already delivered. He already built something and he's asking me yes. to be a part of it. That's exciting. Hey, check out my podcast. I've had 10 episodes, really enjoying it. The listenership is small, but growing. I would love nothing more than the interview on the podcast. It's already there. It's real. You can almost tap into a little bit of FOMO. Oh, this person is going places. Hmm. I want to be associated with them. I don't want to get left behind. That works. So build first. Number two, be helpful. This is just building social capital all the time, everywhere you go. 
go out of your way to look for ways to connect people to say, Hey, have you met this person? Hey, let me know if I can do this. If somebody writes a book that you know that you've ever met, go do an Amazon review for it and email them and say, I liked your book. I did a review on Amazon. Um, do things that are helpful and you'll build all this social capital. When I launched Praxis, that was what I had to rely on. I had to go to people who I had been really helpful to over the years with their career, with whatever else and say, Hey, do you know anyone who can design a logo? Cause I don't. Oh yeah, I do. I know this guy. Hey, could you help me with this? Tapping into that because I created value. And then finally, number three, be direct. So let's say you've already got it built. Let's say you've been helpful to everybody as long as, uh, you know, you, you always are trying to, to build social capital. Now you want somebody somewhat high profile or, or busier than, you know, has a, has a higher value of time than most of the people you're daily working with. Understanding that you've got to be direct and you've got to ask them exactly what you want. Don't pretend it's something else and give them the actual value proposition. What will you actually deliver? If you're a tiny podcast with a hundred listeners and you're like, Hey, will you come on my show? It will be great exposure for you. That's just bullshit. You're trying to pitch them with something that may be a direct ask, but it's not true. Be direct about what the actual value is. Say, Hey, I've only got a hundred listeners. It's not going to give you exposure. Let's be honest. You have a lot more people than that that follow you typically. However, it is going to give me an amazing experience because it's going to be so valuable to me. I'm going to go out of my way to make this the most enjoyable interview you've ever done. I'm going to ask you the questions you never get to ask. In fact, you tell me, what would you like to talk about or whatever? Try something that's honestly acknowledging the value prop and be direct. When I've done this for the podcast, um, I had Tom Woods on and I know he's really busy and he has a really large audience. He had had a couple of us from Praxis on his show. Um, his, his guy came to us and said, would you like to come talk about Praxis? So we went on his show um, and I knew this didn't make me like some have some special inroad because he interviews a lot of people. And I thought, you know what? And he had said, why don't you come back on again after a while and we can do an update on Praxis? And I thought, you know what? Instead of reminding him that he had said that and say, hey, can I come back on? I'm going to flip it around and I'm going to try to create some value for him. And I'm going to say, Tom, how about you come on my show? You can use it as an episode of your show. And I said, I was very direct ask. Instead of having me come back on your show, you come on mine. It's way smaller than yours, but I guarantee this will be the most fun interview you've ever done. That's what I said. And I put in my work. I did some research and some learning and I truly wanted to make it enjoyable for him. He said, okay. And I said, you can use it as a, as a show, um, one of your own shows and your, your listeners could hear you being interviewed. And he did it. And he told me it was one of the most fun interviews he'd ever done. Um, so anyway, I think those three things, build first, be helpful, be direct. Uh, hey, Isaac, don't, don't you get asked to do like 10 podcast interviews a week for podcasts that show no signs of ever going live? Oh, man. I mean, people will say, will you take a look at my uh, blog? And it's a blog that's not live yet. It's like they want me to look at it and say it's good before they publish it. Or, And I'm just like, yeah, but... I mean, the, you're asking so much of me and I feel like, I feel like there's so much burden on me. Like you need me to do something in order for you to hit the next level in life. And that's like, not fair. I don't want that. I want you to come to me and be like, I'm kicking ass. You want to be a part of it? You want to check it out? You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, and I, I think a lot of the no's that people get come from that very thing. They're asking people for stuff like, yeah, I'm going to be starting up a podcast the person, you know, goes and look for evidence of it. And it's like, oh, they're not even doing anything like they're wasting my time. Yeah. And, and don't mistake us to mean like until you have become successful, you shouldn't try to, to make big asks of big, busy people like no, try all you want. This will increase your odds of success if you sort of do these things. But it doesn't mean wait till you have 10,000 followers before you ask anybody 
No, man, shoot for the moon. Ask people, you know, but just be be real about it and have some kind of momentum for wherever you're at, be moving forward. Uh, Michael Hogan, TK, I'll let you take this one. Um, yeah, go ahead. I think this is just as applicable to life as a job search, but why do people see success as topic specific, but will attribute failures to the person as a whole? I.e., you may be a good teacher, salesman, engineer for us to consider you for a position as a teacher, salesman, or engineer, but failing in any of those roles previously is a mark on the character. All right, so I'll go to the NBA because I love basketball analogies. 2003 NBA draft. Let me list for you the top five picks. Number one, LeBron James. Number two, Darko Milicic. Number three, Carmelo Anthony. Number four, Chris Bosh. Number five, Dwayne Wade. So only Four. number five was a success. <laughs> Four out of those five guys are going to be in the Hall of Fame. Darko Milicic, the number two pick, was picked before three Hall of Famers. Don't remind me because my Pistons picked him. <laughs> Joe Dumars was the GM of the Pistons at this time, and he picked Darko. And the fact that this was an absolutely horrible pick was pretty evident within three years. Pretty we, evident. We called him the human victory cigar. He would come out when we were up by 30 and everyone would cheer as he like missed three layups in a row and everyone tried to wanted him to make a basket. <laughs> I mean, th this has to be one of the most major oversights in, in, in NBA draft history. The most major. And it's really conservative for me to say it was obvious within three years. But here's the thing. The reason, you know, most people would have gotten fired for that. But the reason... Joey D got away with that choice was because the Pistons were successful for for about that entire decade. They were competitive. They made it to the finals a couple of times. They made it to the Eastern Conference finals almost every year. They always were a respectable team. There's something about winning that just makes us really forgiving or forgetful of the flaws that exist in our process, because when you win, there are rewards that come along with winning. And those rewards can be a distraction from the things you still need to work on. But when you fail, those distractions don't exist. When you fail, it, we get to see what you did wrong. It's obvious that you lost the game because you were negligent and you threw a bad pass. It's obvious that your business failed because you weren't able to you know, um, have good cash flow. So with failure, you don't have those typical distractions. With success, you tend to have rewards that distract you, which is why winning can actually be very dangerous, although gratifying. It can make you really comfortable and feel like you're doing everything right. Derek Sivers just recently wrote an article about how he um, he's listed himself as an entrepreneur on his website, and he recently removed it because he says it's been about at least 10 years since he started a business. All he's done is he started one business and he's been living off that title for a decade. And he says he's not gonna let himself live off any titles that he hasn't earned. And he talked about how whenever you do something good, it can be easy to live off past success and deceive yourself into thinking that you have no more growing to do. Success often does that, which is why we tend to treat failure as it's about you as a person because we can see your flaws Whereas with success, we just see the awards that you get for the particular thing that you did. But he, he, here's my here's my follow up to that. I actually kind of disagree with the premise of the question because I think it overrates the extent to which we judge people based on failure. I think failure is only really dramatized by the individual who's afraid of it. I think most of society 
doesn't really care about failure as much as the individual thinks they will care. If you try to write a novel, try to write a movie, try to go to Broadway to become an actor and fall on your face, there are probably only about six or seven people that will even know about that. Um, and half of those people won't even care. And the ones who give you a hard time will completely forget about it within 12 months. For the most part, failure is undramatic and unnoticed. It's success that actually brings a lot of attention and a lot of hate and a lot of criticism. So I'm always surprised when people are afraid to fail because they think the world will hate them. It's actually the opposite. You have to be really successful to have the whole world hate you. You actually got to have, like, have a bestseller. Like You got to have a book like Twilight for the whole world to hate you. That's when the hate comes, right? When you have a bestseller, if you try to write a bestseller and you actually fail, no one even knows enough to care. So I think failure is oversaturated. Go ahead. Team Edward or Team Jacob? <laughs> I, I, I can, I'm proud to say I never saw the movie. Dude. <laughs> I didn't either, or or the book. Oh man, I just absorbed that. Hey Michael, I'm gonna get through one thought at you too, specifically regarding the job search, where you say, you know, for people to consider you for a position, um, if you were good at a different position, they assume that success. Oh wait, hold on. Oh okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're good at a specific position you'll be considered for a similar position. But if you failed at a specific position, it's assumed that you wouldn't be able to succeed even at a different position. Now, I think it's more about the story people believe about you than the actual facts of failure. And the story they believe about you comes directly from the story you believe about yourself. So if your narrative comes through implicitly or explicitly through your resumes, interviews, whatever, that I failed at this thing, and therefore, you know, I feel bad about it. I'm a little bit of a failure, uh, but please give me a chance. That's what they'll pick up on. And they'll think you failed at one thing, you're going to fail at everything. If your narrative is, oh man, I tried doing this once. It was ridiculous. I'll never do that again, but I'm really successful as a person. That's going to come through as well. The reason people assume failure at one thing means failure at everything is because most times when they see it, Someone who's failed at their first two jobs is probably going to fail at the third, just statistically. You've got to give them, they're going to go with the default narrative that comes through. And you probably believe that about yourself a little bit too. And you're a little worried that they're going to see you as a failure. That's going to come through. So reframe the narrative. I recently had someone say to me, hey, my company's only been around for two years, but but we actually managed to achieve this. And I said, why did you frame that as if you need to apologize for only having been around for two years? Why don't you use that as a selling point? Change the narrative. Say, in only two years, we have already accomplished this. This is something that we do all the time. We downplay the power of what we do and we undersell. It is about the narrative for sure. Julia Patterson. Have you ever applied the don't do stuff you hate principle to personal relationships or familial ones? If so, how did it pan out? Do you have regrets or do you wish you had cut ties sooner? I think we should both take a quick stab at this one. Um, yes, I have. I apply it to absolutely everything in life and I have no regrets. Uh, I love it. And um, yeah, pretty much everything that I've done that was hard to do, I thought, man, I wish I would have learned to do that sooner. Um, I don't know if I have specific examples, but like I grew up in a time where the telephone was a different beast than it is now. And it was like expected to talk to certain people on the phone or to return their calls or whatever. And even people who like were both parties didn't even know each other well enough to enjoy talking on the phone and didn't even like it, but they felt obligated to for some reason. Um, and when I would dread those calls or just be like, this is so boring, I don't, you know, 
to pretend. We have to both pretend like we want to do an update call, whatever. I just said, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm done. And uh, there was like nothing but goodness that came out of that. <laughs> I was really, really glad. TK, do you have any personal or familial um, don't do stuff you hate examples? Yeah, you know, so in in, in relationships, like I, I stopped hanging out with my wife in Forever 21, you know, when she wants to look for jewelry <laughs> or stuff like that. You know, <laughs> and seriously, don't check it out, man. I, I used to think that I was kind of a jerk for not willing to do that, for not being willing to do that. If she wants to go look in a women's clothing store, I felt like in order to be a good dude, I needed to kind of go do that and, and be there. And so I would be there and I would be bored. I, you know, I would be trying to find ways to entertain myself on my phone. I would find myself getting resentful and, you know, feeling bad about that. And there was just a point where I was like, you know what? I don't enjoy this and I don't have to do this to be a good person. I'm not going to do this anymore. If we happen to be out and I'm in a good mood and it's really convenient and she's only going to be a few minutes, fine. You know, it, I'm not legalistic about it, but no, I'm not going to put that kind of pressure on myself anymore. And it did wonders for our relationship, made me less res uh, resentful and more fun to be around. And more importantly, it brought the emphasis back to doing things that we both enjoy and have in common. And she did the same. She stopped trying to please me by watching basketball with me. She just owned the fact that she hates it, isn't interested in it, and doesn't put any pressure on herself to watch it. And it makes life better for both of us. So over the years, we just celebrated our five-year anniversary. Over the years, we have both become really good at letting go of this pressure like, oh, in order to be a good spouse, I need to do this. We start being more honest about the stuff that we hate and we actually love each other like 10 times more. Next time I'm in the mall, which is probably going to be never, but uh, I, I'm, if I walk by a you know Forever 21 and I see some <laughs> poor, poor dude there on his phone, I'm just going to walk up and be like, brother, let me set you free right now. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> just give him a copy of the book. Just give him a copy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Julia, I would say apply it to everything. I, I feel like that I don't think you can go wrong. I mean, it doesn't mean it's easy, but I think it's just better. If so, if being around someone makes you feel awful, don't be around them. Jeff Till, this one's for you, TK. Can you sing Michael Jackson, Paul McCartney duets live? Preferably the girl is mine. So you, <laughs> you have to sing a duet by yourself. You know what's so awesome? Okay, so I won't sing the duet, but I can do the beginning monologue between Paul and Michael where they're both fighting over a girl. And, uh, and and the two of them are talking like, no, no, she's mine, Pop. She's mine. And he's like, oh, no, 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 she's mine. And it's the most gentleman-like fight over a girl. Just go listen to that song. Just listen to the monologue alone. It's sort of like the Rick James skit. The first hey, 10 times. Your British accent was weak. <laughs> that girl is mine. No, no she's mine. I don't know. Paul, Paul does. I always think of Ringo that like really thick, like Ringo stuff, the Beatles, you know, I don't, I don't know what Paul's accent is, but yours was some weak sauce. All right. All right so I do Michael like, Oh no, Isaac, the girl is mine. And then you go. I don't, I've never actually heard the song. All right, man, this is turning into a holy moment. We should move on. This is super awkward. Thanks. Jeff. <laughs> um, <laughs> Put it on the highlight reel, man. Put it on the highlight reel. This is the only clip they'll listen to 10 years from now. <laughs> Respect the name. All right. Forest Plaster. That's a cool name, Forest. I like that. It's fun to say. Forest Plaster. I've been thoroughly indoctrinated by the conveyor belt mindset, and I'm just starting to try and break free. What's the best way you've found to shed this mindset? Mm. 
Well, I'll just say for me that it started with just this like radical, this is going to sound crazy, but this has been such a, such a wonderful tool, this radical assumption. What if I had just assumed that I'm always right? Not like intellectually, but like my gut, what feels right to me, what I want, what I, what really I hate and makes me feel dead and what I love that that's more right than what everyone else is trying to tell me and expect of me. What if I just defaulted to my gut? What would that be like? And I started to take that seriously. And I'm telling you, your gut is more correct than everyone else's opinions. It just is. Again, that doesn't mean your intellectual, the knowledge you have uh, is correct and that you're right about everything factually, but about what makes you work and tick and come alive. There is no one on earth who knows it better than you. Start believing that. That's it, man. John Maxwell in his book, Failing Forward, tells the story of a guy who fell in love with a cocktail waitress and his and his family was like, no, 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 you need to, you need to date this girl over here because she comes from the same kind of family. And so, you know, he was really in love with the cocktail waitress, but he chose to kind of date this other girl to make his family happy. He marries the girl about 10 years later. It's a family party. Him and that girl have, you know, gone through a bitter divorce and he's had one too many drinks and he's just sitting there as everybody's around him partying. And he says, damn, I should have married the cocktail waitress. The music stops. Everybody turns and looks at him and says, why didn't you? That right there is life in a nutshell. The same people that will harass you, mock you and make you feel guilty for doing what you want to do are the same people who will be like, dude, don't blame me if you follow their advice and turn out to be miserable. You can't get a refund on regret. You know, at the end of the day, don't overestimate the value of other people's opinions. People don't take themselves seriously as you think they do. Go live the life that you want to live because if you're un unhappy about it, nobody else can live that unhappiness for you and no one will even remember that they are the cause of it. And by the way, when people hate on you and you go do your thing, when you're successful, they won't remember that either. They, they will actually remember reality as if they believed in you the whole time. Just do you. People are, people are, are too flaky to, to base your life around. You know, that story reminds me, I was working as a waitress in a cocktail bar. That much is true. Come on. Do you know the song? Do you know the song? I have no idea what you're Are talking you serious? about. serious? I think it's Culture Club. Come on. I was working as a waitress in a cocktail bar. That much Man. is true. Come on, TK. Dude, we must we must be we must have come up in two different culture clubs. Hey. Boom, boom. <laughs> wrong side of the tracks, man. Wrong, wrong side of Lake Michigan. I must be on... nice to grow up in a neighborhood where you get to listen to music like culture clubs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, dude. You were listening to like BB and CC Winans or something. <laughs> dude, I'm, I'm like C Web. Culture, Culture Club was edgy compared to your upbringing. <laughs> I grew up in the burbs, man. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I grew up in the hood, as in the hooded garment worn by priests. Uh, <laughs> Gabe Mitchell. Interesting question. Oh, I like it that you're calling your own question interesting, Gabe. That is some confidence right there. You just framed it for me. Now I'm interested. Interesting uh, question. What implications does Hayek's knowledge problem have on the ideal size and structure of private firms? Um, 
That is an interesting question. So uh, F.A. Hayek, one of my favorite economists, uh, he has several essays about knowledge, the use of knowledge in society. Um, specifically, uh, there's one, the pretense of knowledge, which is sort of about um, elites who assume they know a lot. It was actually his Nobel acceptance speech. I, I highly recommend reading both of those. But the core insight, and this is and this is something he expounds upon that that Mises talks about in the socialist calculation debate, which is the role that prices and emergent market phenomena, specifically prices in the case of Mises, but Hayek goes to, to even broader phenomena, um, including things like language and social norms and whatever, and this sort of tacit knowledge, the extent to which they contain information that cannot be had any other way. So if you have an open market process where all these self-interested people just do their own thing, some sort of order will emerge that contains information in it, whether it's the form of prices or other things that could not be accessed any other way. There are people, for example, who have certain skills and abilities that a central planner trying to say, how can I put everyone best to use for the country by utilizing their skills for production? Even if they asked everyone, what are your skills? People would have skills they don't know about to report, so you couldn't find that. But if you have an open market process where people are bidding for what's the most valuable, when the price goes high enough, you might notice and say, whoa, you can make a lot of money doing that. Let me try it and discover that you're really good at it. You wouldn't have been able to do that without a market process. That's just one example. So Hayek's knowledge problem is basically the idea that knowledge doesn't live in any place where any central planners can go and just find it and collect it and then know what to do with it. It's it's tacit knowledge. It's often things that you don't even know about yourself. And it's, it's hidden all out there. It's localized. People on the ground in a given setting have more knowledge about how to use resources there than other people. Um, and you need a context that lets that happen. So what does that mean for firms? So Ronald Coase is the most famous for uh, th his theory of the firm, which is a phenomenal essay as well. The, I don't remember the name of it. If you just search Coase theory of the firm. Um, and he basically says firms exist because transaction costs exist. Every time you purchase something, it's not just the cost of the good, but the transaction itself has a cost. I have to drive to the store, look over and compare items. This consumes time. I have to go up and actually physically exchange money with someone. There's got to be, you know, uh, we have to have a, a shared communication and understanding of the deal that we're making and all this stuff. And when you're, if you're bid out for a project, um, if you, if you want someone to replace your roof, the, co the, the cost of the transaction is bidding out to all these different people, making sure you can trust them, looking up the reviews, all this stuff. So these exist everywhere. And if everybody was just a free agent, a contractor, we would have transaction costs constantly for everything we do. So firms come together because they reduce transaction costs. If we all have a long-term contract that says, I work for you doing the following thing every single day for the next five years, you only have to make that dis that transaction once and now we can continue on. And so you reduce transaction costs, but there is no optimal firm size. It gives and takes because there's, there's a cost to firms as well. And that's called agency cost or the principal agent problem is this problem where if I own the firm and I hire TK as my IT guy, his incentive is to do things that make his life uh, best and minimize his cost and whatever. And that may not always be what's good for the firm. So I may not know that I could be getting IT services for a lot cheaper elsewhere because I'm not constantly out there bidding for IT services. The reason I'm not is because that's expensive and I don't want to do that. That's a transaction cost. So as long as 
the, the savings in transaction cost is greater than the cost that I could be overpaying TK, but I don't know because I don't go out and rebid for my IT services every day, then I'm okay. But sometimes that agency cost is higher. I actually, even if I went out and, and did all those transactions, I would still be saving money, time, whatever. So there's a tension when it gets, when agency costs exceed transaction costs, firms are technically speaking, too big and they're inefficient. And that tends to get weeded out in the market. When it's the other way around, they need to be bigger. They're not big enough because the transaction costs are higher. Okay. So I don't want to I know that was a lot of detail, but all that to say, the implications to me is there's no ideal size and structure of a firm, but I think given what technology has done, to dramatically reduce transaction costs across the board for basically everything and allow access. And I think this has more to do with Kosa's insight than it does Hayek's, but there is some Hayekian stuff in there. It'll, it reduces the cost of accessing dispersed knowledge in so many ways um, that I think it enables firm size on average to be much, much smaller than it used to be because it's not nearly as costly to uh, do a one-off project with a graphic designer. When you can go on a platform like Fiverr, or whatever, you can access sort of that Hayekian local knowledge by looking at user reviews of those people, how many stars they have, whatever. Um, again, that's you know how much money they charge, the things that are embedded in the prices. It's imperfect, but it's better. The transaction costs have reduced due to technology, which enhances our access to information. Again, assuming all this technology is decentralized and free and open and a give and take process, it's just an extension of the market. And it's also, because it reduces transaction costs, optimal firm size on average, I think is uh, lower. That was kind of technical, but that was a great, great question. Gabe has a follow-up. What are some of your favorite sci-fi books? Uh, TK is going to have a lot more than me, but I hard, I don't read very much sci-fi, but um, I love all the Philip K. Dick short stories, but I would say my favorite sci-fi book is probably The Moon is a Harsh Mistress by uh, Robert Heinlein. TK, what about you? Nice. I'm going to go with Sandman by Neil Gaiman. Get the uh, uh, omnibus edition. Super, super awesome stuff. Uh, it's a graphic novel. And then there's a short story by Ursula K. Le Guin called the rule of names. And I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name right. I've never heard it said, but the rule of names. Super awesome. You can actually find it online for free. Okay. We got three more questions. TK, you take the next one by Michael Hogan. Is there value in boredom or monotony? If so, how do you cultivate in today's culture? Hmm. Is there value uh, in boredom or monotony? So uh, Isaac Morehouse and I wrote an article on taking a walk. Oh, Isaac Morehouse? <laughs> Why did I say your full name when you're right here? Respect and it's clear the that, name. That's the <laughs> respect the name. <laughs> it's the opposite of politicians. I gotta say your full name. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Isaac Morehouse said I wrote this article on on taking a walk, and uh, in that article, I, I talk about the con a concept called noble boredom, and noble boredom is the idea of doing things that are not outwardly glamorous or outwardly sexy, things like meditation, for instance, uh, using those things as a tool for self-discovery, connecting with yourself, uh, creating space for taking inventory of your life and things along those lines. So I like the concept of noble boring, of slowing down, being still, enjoying solitude, and not feeling like you always need to be accomplishing things or doing things, taking the time to get to know yourself. Richard Foster in Celebration of the Discipline says, hurry is not merely of the devil, 
Hurry is the devil. And if you get caught up in a life of busybodiness, you can sort of alienate from that that sense of divinity that we feel when we are involved in the in the creative process. So but on the other hand, I don't think it's necessary to be bored in the sense of, oh, I have nothing to do. I actually think that's a sign of being unhealthy. When, when, when you feel like, oh, I need to be entertained, I need someone to stimulate me, I think that's a sign that you actually haven't taken the time to cultivate the practice of noble boredom, that you don't know who you are, you're not in tune in what, with, with what you're passionate about, and you're dependent on other people to create a, assignments or entertainment. You, you actually see this a lot when people go through the school system. They start off as curious children who always can find things to do and play with, but then as they get older and they're accustomed to just everything being determined authoritatively, they lose that ability and they quickly get into this state of, I need someone to entertain me, I need someone to tell me what to do. So noble boredom, yes, actively cultivate it. The other kind of boredom, use it as, a, use it as an indicator of the fact that you need to spend more time getting to know yourself so that you don't feel the need to be externally stimulated. Blake Bowles uh, came on this podcast early on, really fascinating guy, big into self-directed learning. And he told this story. I can't remember if it was about him. I think it was about him when he was a child, but it could have been someone else where he said, I'm bored. And his grandpa rolled up a magazine and swatted him on the, on the head with it and said, bored people are boring people. Um, yes. Phil Gross, is the German school system a better non-conveyor belt method of education as opposed to American schooling? Nine. No, I'm just kidding. I, I just had to say nine because it's the only, <laughs> the only German. I, I don't know very much about it at all. I have heard some things here and there that apprenticeship is something that's a little more common over there. So to that extent, the more experience you can have, um, I think that's better than just purely being in the classroom. I also have heard that things like homeschooling are like completely illegal in Germany. So I don't know enough about the school system to say. Um, the fact that I don't know enough about it is a rough indicator that it's probably not that radical and probably not that different to where it's like, yes, this is freedom. This is what education should look like. Um, that's just a guess though. Kelly Hackman, what is the most important lesson each of you gleaned from the book Finite and Infinite Games by James Kars? Mm, you wanna go? Yeah, man, that's cool. Uh, so the, the, the subtitle of the book is a vision of life as play and possibility. So the main theme here is the notion that life can be characterized as a game. And there are essentially two types of games, finite and infinite games, and he gives lots of distinctions between the two. But my favorite one is that a finite game is one where you play within the rules. A, uh, an infinite game is one where you play with the rules. And James P. Kars gives you some insights and ideas for how you can make life a game where you don't feel like you're stuck within an existing paradigm, but it feels like you're actually playing with the rules, not merely within them. Now, there's a, there's a particular quote that I've actually cited on this show before uh, where Carr says, he who must play cannot play. And I, I think from the standpoint of pedagogy, there's an interesting, interesting lesson there when you correlate it with things like Peter Gray's Free to Learn, how if you want to help people learn, you have to help cultivate a spirit of play. But in order to do that, you actually have to leave them alone and give them the space to do what they want to do. And I think there's a whole lecture that could be given on that. But I actually think the most interesting connection is with the theme of Isaac's book, 
don't do stuff you hate. When Carr says he who must play cannot play, what he's essentially saying there is if you're doing something that you feel like you are obligated to do, it's impossible to experience that as a game. It's impossible to approach that with a spirit of playfulness. So that means you either have to only do stuff that you love or find the love in the stuff that you do. That means you either have to avoid stuff that you hate or figure out a way to see the stuff that you do as in a way that is not hateful. And so one of the ways I apply this in my life was I just started eliminating speech of necessity from my life. I stopped saying things like, I have to go do this. I have to go to work. I have to attend this function. And I started challenging myself to say, all right, either you really want to do this because you value it the most, or you're not going to do it at all because I'm determined to live my life as a game and experience everything as playful. And since he who must play cannot play, I'm going to force myself to stop being lazy here and get real with myself. Do I choose to own this? Is this something that I really want to do? And a lot of times I decided, you know what? Nope. I'm not going to attend this function. I'm not going to do this thing because I'm not going to live my life in that way. But other times I realized that I was BSing myself by using the language of necessity and I actually altered the way I felt about the experience. So that concept alone, forcing me to think about my standards and my priorities in order to cultivate a spirit of play in the things I do has radically altered my, my attitude towards everyday activities. You always have the memory for specific quotes and things, but I get to correct you. You said the subtitle was uh, a vision, a vision of, of play and possibility. Possibility, right? It's possibility and play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, boom! <laughs> Two points for Isaac. Uh, Bam! Respect the title. Respect <laughs> the title. Respect the name of the book, uh, <laughs> Kelly. I think for me, it's that possibility aspect. This book, and I've read it twice and then skimmed sections of it multiple times. And just any little page or section of it just helps me because I, I haven't, it's not second nature yet. The paradigm of this book is not second nature to me yet. It's not, I have to actually consciously put it on as a lens through which to see the world. It's not naturally my lens yet. I'm getting closer. I keep trying to make that happen, but it's taken a long time because it's very different from the way that I think we're sort of conditioned to see the world. Um, but whenever I do and I put that lens back on, I think the powerful thing for me is that possibility aspect. Once you drop the everything just is or isn't good or bad, every situation has a right action I should take or whatever, I'm either being done an injustice or not fair, unfair. You drop all that and say, hey man, it's, it's games. These are overlapping games with incentive structures and there are costs and benefits to deviating from the game that may or may not be worth it. Then even when you comply with various games, like say social norms, when you recognize you're doing it because you've decided it's not worth it to defect and you're playing a game, it just changed everything. Is There's so many more possibilities that open up. And a real tangible way that this helped me when I went to launch Praxis, and I know I've talked about this before, my first idea for a business model, I found out it was illegal thanks to the labor department. It was going to be you pay zero tuition, but you have, your apprenticeship is unpaid. So it's just a free program, but you don't earn any money. And it was illegal. You can't work for free because, you know, well-paid older union workers hate competition and want to use government to prevent it, more or less. It's a quick and dirty version. But um, 
And I was really, really ticked off. And I talked to my brother, who's an accountant, who knows that everything is a game, including tax returns. Um, <laughs> he, he, uh, it, he was like just laughing. He's like, there's always a way around it. There's always some other way. That's, what, that's why everybody else has stopped. You figure it out. And I did, and it was actually pretty easy, which is what we do now. The program, you pay tuition and businesses pay you the equivalent or a little bit more than tuition. So it's still a free program from the participant standpoint. And instead of businesses paying us directly for an unpaid worker, they pay the worker and the worker pays tuition, right? So it's just a slightly roundabout way, but I think it was reminding me of that game-like mindset, that possibilities. Every time you're pissed about something, there's a possibility you're not seeing. And I think that's a really powerful mindset. So before we wrap up, I just realized I want to just touch on one more aspect of Gabe Mitchell's question, because I realized he also said Hayek's knowledge problem implications for not just the size of firms, which is why I went into sort of the Kosian stuff on um, transaction costs, but the structure of firms. TK, what, what do I always say about Praxis in terms of the way that we're structured? We're not a hierarchy. We're a what? See if you remember. Oh man, I, I I don't remember a, a one word that you use in oh, contrast to hierarchy. I feel like everything I've done has been has been a failure. I know, right? <laughs> I might have fell asleep during that meeting. <laughs> All right, so so I try to take these the insights about where knowledge resides. That it's tacit. It's on the local level. It's um, you know people have knowledge that they don't even know how to express and it can't all be codified into top-down rules and processes. But at the same time, you want a company to be efficient. So you want to have shared information, et cetera. So how do you allow that knowledge to flow most freely? I like to think of Praxis, and I think this is how more and more companies are starting to operate as a network. It's not a hierarchy with a org chart that has different boxes with other boxes under them or parallel to them or whatever with titles that confer what your duty is and what people are supposed to respect you for. It's more like a network. And if you think of a network, like even a social network, say Facebook, when someone says, oh, that's the baseball guy, he's like, he's got, he's an expert on baseball. He has authority. He's a go-to. I listen to him when he talks about baseball. They don't say that because someone gave them a title. Facebook baseball guy, they say it because through their work, they earned a reputation that automatically built this sort of network around them. People naturally come to them for that thing based on who they are in the network. In a network, everyone's not equal. There are people who are leaders. There are people who have more authority and power and influence than others. But that wasn't given to them because someone said, you get to be a level five on Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg doesn't give out Facebook roles and say, you get to be in the third pay grade and you are part of the leadership team of Facebook influencers. No, everybody just joins this big messy network and starts producing stuff and they gain a reputation. They gain authority. They gain power. They gain certain relationships. Some people go to you for one thing, but not another, et cetera. That's how I think a firm ought to be. So I always like to say to the guys like, look, if someone were to, let's say you have no title and you want to be the CFO, chief financial officer, it should be something where if we announced, hey, so-and-so is the CFO, everyone would be like, "I thought, oh, I thought they already were the CFO, right? Like you should get to a point where you just are that thing, regardless of what your title is, regardless of what someone says, you're okay, they have authority over X, Y, and Z. 
It's like, you don't have to say it. You don't have to make it official. You don't have to go on and say, Steve Martin on Twitter now has the authority to make jokes that many people laugh at. We all know that because it's already true based on what he's done. And so I think that allows you, if you see a firm as a network, it doesn't mean it's not flat. Everyone's not equal in a network. It doesn't mean everyone has equal say and equal power and equal influence, but it doesn't mean that what authority you have and what information, the weight that it carries, when you say, I think we should do X, it's going to carry different weight, but that's based entirely on your reputation that you've created freely, not upon what's been conferred upon you. And I think that's a way to allow people to access all this dispersed knowledge and information. We can go to Amazon and you can read a review by someone who's never done a review before and you have access to that information. On the other hand, people who've done a lot of reviews and are good at them, they'll probably have their review rated higher for usefulness. So you will have maybe more weight on that guy's review. It allows you to do both, to access everything without treating everything equal, which is horribly inefficient. By the way, man, can you imagine how hilarious it would sound if you went to Steve Martin's Twitter account, assuming he has one, and it says Steve Martin, comedian? <laughs> he, pro he probably does. I don't know. He does have one. He's hilarious on Twitter. Um, I, I just I just looked at Kevin Hart. You know, I had to upgrade the uh, example really quickly, just, you know, just to get a little bit more modern with our top comedians. And he just says, my name is Kevin Hart and I work hard. That pretty much sums me up. Or what if it was better? What if it was like in organizations, it will be like, you know, regional manager, assistant regional manager, regional director. There are like levels, you know, and everyone knows that like assistant is lower than, you know, associate, which is lower than manager. What if it was like that on social networks where it was like, you know, um, lover of life, level five, you know? Writer on medium, <laughs> a, a management level medium writer, you know, comedian, level seven comedian. Amazing. Um, okay, we've gone on and this has been a longer episode than usual. So I will not try to get to a couple topics that were not questions that I thought about getting to hedonism, stoicism, why asking who funds something makes you dumber. Um, we can save those for another time. What do you say, Teak? Another time. Book recommendations, my man. All right, hit me. What do you got? I'm going to go with The Option Method by Bruce DiMarsico. It's, uh, it's a great book on understanding discontentment in a way that is empowering and doesn't have to be equated with depression or discouragement. All creativity arises out of discontentment, but it doesn't necessarily have to arise from a place of hating your life or hating where you are. Mm. I'm going to go with – now this one is specific to children, but it really isn't. It can be beneficial for anybody. Um, it helps you understand your own mindset and other people's mindsets. And that is The Optimistic Child by uh, Martin Seligman, who's done a lot of really interesting stuff on um, optimism, pessimism, self-esteem, worldview. Uh, so The Optimistic Child by Seligman. Uh, is that it? Are we done? That's it, man. Live from the Beehive, we out. All right. Respect the name, my man. We'll talk next week. Peace.